Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. This fall, we are studying Genesis, the story of us, and I hope we'll get you thinking about an old story in a new way. I had a friend once explained to me uh, why the English drive on the left-hand side of the road. And that's not a joke. Why the English drive on the left-hand side of the road? It began in Roman times, and it began with Roman roads. Chariots were driven in those days with reins held in the right hand and a whip in the left hand, which means that if you were to pass a chariot coming in the opposite direction, your whip hand needs to be on the farthest side of the road. This is why they drive on the left-hand side of the road in Great Britain. And this is an origin story. This is a good way to start because Genesis is also an origin story. It was conceived within a specific context and it answers specific questions in their time. To recap from chapter 1, the book of Genesis was written after God's people lost everything. This is a story written in response to loss. The year was 586 B.C. The Babylonian army represented in the lion behind me here breached the city wall of Jerusalem. They plundered the temple. They destroyed it completely. They burned the city to the ground. And then they led away the best and the brightest of them into exile, far away from home. They never thought they would see it again. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to any of them. Prophets, people appointed by God to speak God's word to them, warned them of this coming destruction for years. And sometime in the 7th century B.C., um, the son of a priest named Jeremiah came down from a town called Anatote to prophesy to the king. And we know that Jeremiah is a real guy because in Jerusalem they found uh, some archaeological evidence of, of the king's ministers to whom Jeremiah, about whom Jeremiah writes. Uh, so there, there's evidence that Jeremiah was a real person, writing real people in real time, and his message was simply this. Judah had been unfaithful. They had forsaken God by worshiping Baal. Baal comes up from time to time in the Hebrew scriptures, B-A-A-L. Uh, it's also known as the golden calf. What you need to know is that Baal was a rain god, which means that many of us have been tempted to pray to Baal lately, uh, but it also means that the Hebrews were hedging their bets. This confirms a theory of mine that in scripture, no matter what story you run across from page one to page a thousand, it's always the same story. No matter how obscure, it's always the same story. Are you going to be different? Are you going to be something else? Are you going to be different in the way that God wants you to be different? Trusting, prayerful, faithful, or are you going to be something else? Are you going to hedge your bets? Are you going to go with what you know? Are you going to go with something safe? Are you going to go the easy route? Are you going to be different? Are you going to be something else? The stories are all the same. In the end, Jeremiah's warnings were so dire and so vivid that he was considered to be demoralizing to the point that the king's soldiers threw him down into a pit, even as the Babylonians laid siege to the city. 
As I prepare this, I have to tell you, I've got this little Israeli buddy named Don. A bunch of y'all know him. And so I look at my world clock on my, on my iPhone, right? And, and make sure that he's not asleep. And I'll text him while I'm writing this. And so I said, did we find any archaeological evidence of Jeremiah? He says, Rich, remember, they found the seals of the ministers in the city. Oh, yeah, great. Hey, Edan, did they, did they find the pit that they threw Jeremiah into? And he wrote me back, let it go, Rev. I wrote back, it, it, it would have been cool, <laughs> but they didn't. However, they, Jeremiah did leave an anthology, and, and in chapter 3, the prophet speaks these words of God himself. And th- this is really poignant. I thought, I thought how I would set you among my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful heritage of all the nations, and I thought... I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. And so in 586 BC, the dream ended for a time. And it's in this context, far away from home after losing everything, and it was their fault and they knew it, that Genesis was written here in Babylon. Here in Babylon, faced with loss and destruction of their own making, they began writing down stories that had been told by the bedside for generations. And it is in this foreign land, and after losing their homes and even their identity, that they wrote down an old story about a boat and a man and his family and animals two by two. We call this story Noah's Ark. Now, friends, something happened. It had to. Flood stories show up in civilizations around the world. Did you know this? The Native Americans have a flood story, both North and South America. There's an Aboriginal flood story from Australia. There's a Hindu flood story. There's a Chinese flood story. It's no stretch to imagine that at the end of the last ice age, there was an abundance of water and a flood, which caused people to write flood stories. And long before the Bible was written, there was a blockbuster flood story that they loved to read and to tell. And it came from the land from which Babylon would actually rise to power, The story is 4,000 years old. They were telling this story for 1,400 years when the Hebrews arrived there in exile. They called it the Epic of Gilgamesh. It involves a flood, involves a boat, it has a hero. But the story is different from the one we know because in this story, the Babylonian story, the gods destroy the earth because humanity is basically annoying, which sounds about right to me. They find humanity annoying and noisy, and so they destroy the earth. And and this hero, only through trickery and cunning, is able to survive. The Hebrews, living now in this foreign land, losing their identity, losing their own children, losing their religion to the Babylonians, wanted to remain different in that Bible way that I like to say the Bible asks us to be different. So they told their children a new story. They repurposed the Epic of Gilgamesh, the old one, but from a different perspective. Now, if this sounds a little pointy-headed, let me see if I can, if I can come up with a good analogy we can all get our minds around. Uh, um, the Broadway musical Wicked retells the story of the Wizard of Oz from a new perspective. Remember? Remember the Wicked Witch of the West, and Wicked is not wicked at all. Her name's Elphaba, and she's marginalized because her skin is green. The Wizard of Oz, it's, I'll get you, my pretty. But in Wicked, it's, 
Unlimited. Right, all right. So, so now you heard me say this. Rich said the no, that Noah's Ark is like wicked. It's exactly true. Okay, it's a flip story, and it's flipped around. They took that old story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, that old flood story, and they told it from God's perspective. It's not from the hero's perspective. It's not from a human perspective. But suddenly, it's from God's perspective. Uh, it's not Noah's trickery, but rather God's grace. They knew that humankind had messed up everything, and this this destruction of the world was their own fault. And remember, in Genesis chapter 1, from chapter 1, we talked about creation being a dome over the sky, holding the water away from the earth. That's how they explain that the sky is blue, guys. They're, they're ancient people. They're not scientists. This was their poetic way of saying that God removed water to give us space. But can you see now the flood takes on new meaning as the cosmos is simply imploding. Uh, it's everything is falling down around them. And they knew this all too well because they'd seen it in 586 BC. This, this deluge of the flood represents what's happening in their own existence. And guys, ancient people also told flood stories because they were terrified of water. 1986, there was a drought. We know something about that too, right? Uh, there was a drought in the Sea of Galilee or the region of the Galilee. The Sea of Galilee had shrunk to historic lows and there was a large mudflat in front of a little kibbutz, a village called Nof Gennesar. Two fishermen, Moshe and Ival Lufan, were actually out on the water and they saw a shape in the mud and they pulled it up and it was a wooden Galilean fishing boat. Archaeologists figured out a way to inject it with, with plastic, of all things, so that it wouldn't disappear. You know, wood will vaporize after it's not wet anymore, so they injected it with polyurethane, in effect, leaving this wooden boat for people to see. Then they studied the wood. It had 12 different kinds of wood, which means it was a poor person's fishing boat. The wood dated anywhere from 50 years before Jesus' birth to 50 years after Jesus' birth. Then by deduction from some Jewish coins and a Sabbath lamp within the fishing boat, they figured out that this was indeed a Jewish fishing craft. And then by a little more deduction, realizing that there weren't that many of those boats on the lake at the time, and for the little more deduction, they learned that if they couldn't prove that Jesus actually rode upon it, he at least saw it, and with a little more deduction, they figured out that, that it's, it's almost inescapable that he wouldn't have ridden in it at some point on that shore of the lake. They call it the Jesus Boat. I met Yuval um, Lufon actually cutting grass at the kibbutz. This was his job now. He's still there. He finds the Jesus Boat. And he goes back to life, but it's really not the same. Uh, I've read that his carvings, he now does sculpture that they sell all over the world, but he didn't ever sculpt anything until after he found the boat. It's my own romantic imagination to think that the boat changed him somehow. He's a, he's a faithful guy living on a village, uh, cutting grass, but he's different somehow since he found it. In Mark chapter 4, we're told that Jesus was in a boat, if not this boat, one very much like it, and a great windstorm arose so that they thought that they were perishing. The word in Mark's gospel said that it's a killing storm. It was not just a rainstorm, but a killing storm, sideways wind, uh, so that they thought they would be capsized. And Jesus said, peace, be still. And to this day, we build churches to look like boats. And I want to remind you that the nave of St. Luke's is an inverted boat that we can always get into when we find ourselves in storms. Like Noah, like Jesus, like us, we can go to the boat and we can be safe. And we can find God was always with us all along, even in the terror of a storm. 
Well, let's read a little bit of the story. Hey, for those of you who have a Bible on your table, I want you to open to page number five, which is Genesis chapter six, beginning with the fifth verse, because we're going to highlight a word if you've got a highlighter nearby. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. Now, we've been learning this all along. The, the wickedness that began in the garden continued with their son Cain, and then we looked at 10 generations out, and a man named Lamech was so wicked that he'll avenge someone 77 times. And remember last week, we also saw that Jesus said, you can forgive 77 times and undo that curse. Uh, but we see also in the story of Genesis, the poem, that wickedness now is spiraling out of control to the part point that God, God can't handle it anymore. We've gone beyond his protection. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and the bird of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. I'm always fond of saying that the Hebrews gave us the gift of time. They invented the idea of time. They believed that if God did something once, God would do it again in time. And so that's why they remembered uh, that someone named Abraham was born, and Abraham lived, and Abraham died. Whatever God did for Abraham, God will do for us. They remembered that they were rescued from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt because God will rescue us. That's the idea of time. But there's another gift of the Bible as well. The Hebrews were the first to come up with the idea that God loves us. God loves us. It was nonsensical to ancient people to consider that God would love his creation. It was nonsensical to consider that God would care about his creation. And yet it's here in the face of the wickedness of humankind itself that God has willed grace for Noah in the face of this, all this destruction. And all that said, God is still very sad about the situation. Very, very sad. Um, there's a word embedded in this story, asav, which is the word for greed. If you've got a highlighter, I want, you to, I want you to highlight this. The Lord was sorry that he made humankind, verse six, on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Grieved him. If you'll highlight the word grieve. Now, again, the grief of God means that it's because of the love of God. He's sorry that we've done what we've done. He's sorry that we've destroyed the world that he gave us. He's sorry that we failed to live up to the potential that he wanted for his children, and it grieves him. Now, if you turn back a page or two to uh, page three, you will see in verse, um, oh, let's see, where are we? Verse 16, to the woman, he said, this is after the expulsion from the garden, he says to Eve, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Don't worry about that rule over you part. <laughs> what that means, uh, ancient people, what that simply means is that she would be safe and she would be provided for. That's what that means, that he would actually rule over her, means he would serve her. But what God says is in pain you'll bring forth children. I want you to highlight the word pain because that's also a solve. Grief and in pain are the same words. Now, here's the connection I'm making here. God's pain is a parent's pain. God's worry is a parent's worry. God's grief is a parent's grief. And any of us who are parents know that we never stop raising them. We never stop worrying over them. We never stop crying for them. And God loves us that much. 
It's embedded in the poem we call Genesis. I have behind me a picture of a rainbow coming right out of the Sea of Galilee. I took this picture in February. I was riding with Edan. We were heading into town. I took that picture from Edan's car. I was so excited about it that I ran into the hotel and I said, did you see the rainbow? Did you see the rainbow? I said this to the staff working there. Did anyone see the rainbow? They looked at each other sort of perplexed and this girl said in very broken English, do you not have rainbows at home? (laughs) See, it turns out they have rainbow just about every day on the Sea of Galilee. There's so much moisture in the air that rainbows just just pop right out of that, which makes me really happy that Jesus saw rainbows every day. Now, we know the story. We know how it goes. There is destruction. The cosmos does implode upon itself. The world is covered with water. But God throws another lifeline, like God always does, not bound by the laws of cause and effect. He instructs Noah to build a boat. He teaches him how to do it. He saves his family and all the creatures of the earth. And then they get a new start and a rainbow of grace. This story is one of the foundations of the reason why we have animal blessings in our church. We don't bless animals to make them holy. We believe that God already made them holy. But we give thanks for our pets because they remind us of God's love for us. I had a question from a young man in church, gosh, just a couple weeks ago. He stopped me, teenager, he stopped me in the hall. He said, Father Rich, I have a question. I said, sure, what what could it be? My teenagers don't want to talk to me. And uh, he uh, he said, Father Rich, I need to know, do dogs go to heaven and I knew that it was a serious question. He, he, I could see on his face this was not anything to take lightly. And so I said to him this. I, first of all, the, the question stung me a little bit because I remembered Buster, my beloved lab, who, who just has always had my heart. And when Buster died, I had to come apart. And I said, um, I said to him, friend, I don't believe love ever ends. I don't think God gives us this kind of love for this kind of love to ever stop. If you, ever, if you ever know true love, then it never ends. And I'm counting on the fact that when I cross the river one day, Buster's going to be waiting on me. I mean that with all my heart. I mean that. And I also draw strength in this because God loved his own creation. Not only, not only Noah and his family, but also the critters. And so this poem tells us the, the truth about this. God loves this world. He adores this world. And he's not bound by any cause and effect, even, even our own undoing. He saves us in spite of ourselves, and he saves us even when we do wrong with it. Sometime in the mid-19th century, these physicists came up with the the, the ideas of the first and second law of thermodynamics. I, this is the best example I can think of that, that tells me the truth of God and God's world and us. And the first and second laws of thermodynamics go like this. If I have any physicists present, I'm sorry. I'm going to try it, okay? The first law is this. All the matter in the universe is already here. It can't be created or un- uncreated. That's the first law. Second law is that matter goes from usable to unusable form. In other words, that's the law of decay, First and second law of thermodynamics. The truth of Scripture is this, is that we neglect a third law, and that's the law of resurrection and the law of grace. And on the third day, an empty tomb proves once and for all that death is not the last thing. What did John Clopel used to say? The worst things are not the last things, that we keep going. We get our lives back. In Noah's Ark, the world is destroyed. But God gives Noah life. God gives his creatures life. God gives them life back. That's the third law, the law of resurrection. And how about this one? Let's say it this way. Noah's Ark teaches me that God is the God 
of second chances. For all of us, God is the God of second chances. See, we just thought it was a children's story. We thought it was something to put in our nurseries with a boat and two giraffes sticking out of the top, right? And rather, it's a retelling of an older story flipped on its head to say the truth of God's unending love for us just like a parent. I believe that Noah's Ark was told by somebody who lost everything. And Babylon would become an ark for them. What is the ark for us? Well, we can always remember to get in that boat upstairs and be safe. What is the ark for us when we've lost everything and we're at our wit's end and God gives us the lifeline of grace? What is the ark for us as we remember we can always go home? So that's what I've got about Noah's ark. I hope I've got you thinking about it in a new way. Our mission is to be an open, inviting, and serving community. Christ Jesus Christ is the center of our life, and the gospel is modeled in Cook Lane, the Word, and Sacrament. Good job.